literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Another episode of my podcast, Love That Album, Morris speaking here, uh, and thanks very much for however you've chosen to listen to this, be it uh, from the website or downloaded from iTunes. Uh, the format of the show, in case this is your first time, is that I usually sit in with a guest host and we talk about an album that we both love in some detail, uh, sort of how the way some of these podcasts talk about films, but uh, I guess uh, well, more about albums. Um, I'm doing something a little bit different for this episode. Uh, that is, I'm flying solo. Normally, I, uh, as I said, like to talk with uh, a guest host, a friend who might share that passion for a particular album. But um, the album that I've chosen to speak about on today's show, uh, Joe Jackson's Night and Day, I'm really quite surprised that I couldn't find anyone who um, shared my uh, interest and passion for uh, songwriter Joe Jackson. Um Certainly, I guess there were people back in my youth, gosh, that makes me sound old, um, who uh, liked JJ, uh, but um, yeah, it seems like I'm the only one who still cares enough to uh, want to actually talk about uh, the man's work. Uh, so uh, that's going to be uh, the focus of uh, this episode, me talking about Joe Jackson's 1982 album Night and Day. Now normally the first thing that happens on uh, the program, if you've listened to the earlier episodes you'd know, is uh, myself and the guest host would talk about uh, just whatever we've been listening to of late before we delve into the main focus of the episode. Uh, but I think I'm going to dispense with that this time and just focus on um, uh, Joe Jackson for a little while and then uh, Night and Day in particular. So um, uh, I'm sure a lot of you out there who may be listening to this, your first uh, instance of listening to Joe Jackson might have been with the big hit single from his uh, album of, I think, 1979, Look Sharp. Uh, the big song was, Is She Really Going Out With Him? And uh, I doubt he's been able to do a concert uh, or live performance of any sort since then where he's uh, not been able to do that song. Um, it's, it's uh, I guess, you know, the stairway to heaven of uh, the Joe Jackson repertoire. Um, uh, myself, I came to Joe Jackson in a slightly different way. I mean, I guess like everyone else, I had heard that as uh, the first song that was all over the radio the year that it came out, but it didn't really spark my interest at the time. It wasn't until um, album number four that he put out, uh, Joe Jackson's Jumping Jive, that uh, I started taking a bit of an interest. Um, for those of you who might not know this album or might not have heard it, uh, he, after he'd gone and done his first three uh, punky sort of albums, punk pop albums, um, by the time he got to album number four, he'd gone and uh, dispensed with his original band, um, except he retained bass player Graham Maybe, who's pretty much been with him for most of uh, Joe Jackson's uh, career. Uh, so he retained Graham Maybe, got a whole bunch of new players, 
and put together a, a jazz swing album. This has to be remembered, this was well before the uh, whole jazz revival of the late 80s, early 90s with uh, groups like the Brian Setzer Orchestra had uh, come into being. So um, if uh, JJ had gone and released that album uh, a few years later, it might have been a bigger hit than it was. But still, uh, a classy album it was anyway and contained mostly uh, cover versions of Louis Jordan tunes uh, with uh, two or three other things thrown in for good measure. Um, anyway, I don't remember where I heard the main track, Jump and Jive, first, but that certainly was the first album that I remember going out and buying of Joe Jackson's. Might have heard uh, the song Jump and Jive on uh, the radio at the time. I remember it was uh, like a minor hit here in Australia, uh, and I found the music quite exciting, of course. That was my uh, door opener, not just into um, uh, the world of Joe Jackson, but also into uh, jazz material in general, I think. Um, so, uh, yeah, but, uh, Joe Jackson, um, uh, look, I'll, I'll get into uh, Night and Day in a few minutes because that was the album that, uh, followed, um, uh, Jump and Jive, but, um, yeah, look, uh, so he, he's gone and already in his lifetime, he's gone and written a, uh, a rather strange biography, um, he goes and calls it, uh, more like a book about music. Um, just in the guise of a memoir, and it's unusual because uh, most most uh, biographies uh, tend to cover uh, a life's work of uh, you know, of the subject matter, and um, this is rather unusual because this tends to cover Joe's uh, activities, his musical background, up until he actually recorded his first album, Look Sharp. He said everything after that was just a variation, record an album tour, record an album tour. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more interesting stuff that we could learn uh, from uh, his activities once he started recording albums. But it was an interesting uh, biography nevertheless. It sort of read to me a bit like a Ben Elton book, but with uh, none of the comedy. Uh, there's a lot of standing on the soapbox, a lot of preaching, which I'll get into in a few minutes. Um, uh, I had a few uh, problems with the book, but a lot of it was interesting nevertheless. Um, so I've always found that Joe Jackson was a, a really interesting songwriter. And, uh, in the beginning of uh, his career, it seemed he was um, uh, lumped in uh, with uh, other songwriters of the day like uh, Elvis Costello and Graham Parker. And one thing that he certainly had in common uh, on an ongoing basis with Elvis Costello is both songwriters certainly had an adventurous uh, a penchant for trying something new um, and uh, both both artists have gone and made albums in a truly wide range of styles not necessarily always successful uh, in both artists cases but um, uh, full-hearted respect for both of them for having the guts to uh, take the chance and uh, just sort of say well look I want to do this uh, the true fans will follow where I go uh, and hopefully they'll enjoy what I do rather than just sort of giving variations on the same thing every time. Um, but um, I, I think he, he, I remember reading an article a few years ago after Joe Jackson toured for the last time that I can recall in Australia promoting his Rain album, uh, the last album that um, I think he's recorded to date. Um, uh, the uh, reviewer for uh, the Australian newspaper talking about one of his concerts uh, stupid little Hable Joe as um, the Christopher Marlowe to uh, Elvis Costello's Shakespeare and, and uh, wrote him off as something of a, a journeyman songwriter. Um, 
And that, that just read to me as being something really stupid. And, you know, as I mentioned, not all of his albums uh, worked, and for that matter, neither did all of um, Elvis Costello's albums. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of the Joe Jackson albums that through his time that really haven't done anything for me were um, uh, his Symphony Number no. 1. Uh, and it is, you know, should be known here that um, he does have a classically trained background. So I guess it was inevitable that he was going to pursue something uh, in the classical vein. And he's made a few albums in the classical vein. But uh, his symphony uh, was actually um, you know, a long, uh, a long form uh, piece, but done with rock, um, rock instrumentation. And um, I didn't find anything melodically interesting. And uh, I, I'm loath to use the words pretentious because I know that that's been applied to um, uh, another album that I really do love. Um, uh, that he that he did um, called Heaven and Hell, um, but um, but yeah, something about Symphony that just didn't work for me. Uh, and the other album that I really can't stand, have no time for. Uh, funnily enough, is the sequel to today's Focus album, uh, Night and Day Two. He uh, I guess wanted to uh, I don't know duplicate the success or of uh, the first Night and Day album, and maybe just gave it a label or. He genuinely thought that he was paying a second tribute to New York, but I gave that one listen and I just, I couldn't deal with it. I don't know if there's anyone out there who uh, feels otherwise, um, feel free to write to me uh, and uh, let me know your thoughts. I'd really be interested to know um, what you guys think out there. Uh, but um, most of the time, I think where he has been adventurous, uh, his his uh, his uh, musical writing and performance has worked. Uh, the Heaven and Hell album I just mentioned, before is both experimental and successful. It's actually attributed to um, uh, Joe Jackson and Friends, and uh, he has a myriad of um, uh, guest performers coming and singing and uh, uh, playing with him. Uh, and the theme of the album is the seven deadly sins. And uh, I remember a, a Melbourne broadcaster uh, saying something about it being a, a pretentious piece of wankery. Well, I happen to think of that Melbourne broadcaster is a pretentious piece of wankery because, you know, not all songs, not all pop songs have to be about um, uh, drinking coke at the soda shop with your girl or protesting uh, government government uh, uh, policy. Uh, sometimes, you know, you do want to explore other themes and he quite adventurously did it. And it was um, uh, not just adventurous, but it was musically and lyrically very successful. And it's an album I urge you to... Uh, search out and give it a listen to uh really quite wonderful um so yeah well where, what else did i want to talk about um uh before we get into the album proper look yeah just i, I guess my recommendations if uh, you're only a casual joe jackson fan um the albums that i'd say if you want to go beyond a greatest hits album uh the albums i'd recommend uh that are you know, pretty essential to uh, build up a good representation of what the man was about. Uh, his debut album, Look Sharp, of course, uh, Night and Day, which we're going to talk about. Uh, Blaze of Glory, uh, which was, I think, the last album he recorded for the A&M label. Uh, every song segues into the next one, except for um, uh, the song that would have ended off side one, of course, on, on uh, the vinyl version. Uh, but uh, an interesting collection of songs. A rather good collection. Very slick in production, but still um, great songwriting there. And um, uh, 
uh, yeah, quite a conglomerate of styles. Uh, 19 Forever, if you remember that song, was the big uh, single from that album. Uh, Body and Soul uh, was uh, a great album that he put out a few years earlier. Uh, has a picture of Joe holding a saxophone on the front cover, pretty much in a, the same pose as uh, Sonny Rollins. I'm not sure, can't remember what the Sonny Rollins album was, but one of the albums he recorded for Blue Note Records. And I think that um, the, the layout of the vinyl, including cover notes on the background, all sort of mirrored the uh, stylistic layout of uh, the great Blue Note label albums. Uh, but yeah, Body and Soul, uh, you can't get what you want. So you know what you want, I think it was a big single off that album. And yep, the aforementioned Heaven and Hell. If you get uh, any of those, you can't be going wrong. He, of course, he has other great albums, but um, those are pretty essential, I think, if you want to build up a, a good Joe Jackson collection that's you know, not just based on uh, a greatest hits album. Now, having said all this about my admiration for him as a musician and as a songwriter, I'm, I've got to confess I'm not too crazy about him as a human being. Um, and I base this on three things. Um, first of all, I guess uh, part of it's my own, uh, how shall I say it, uh, my, my own low self-esteem, I guess, as a musician. Um, basically, in his book, A Cure for Gravity, where he's talking about his own uh, ambition and his own love of playing, um, he, he goes off on these tangents where he talks for a while uh, about things that he's passionate about. But one of the things that he's passionate about is, I guess it's not a bad thing in a way where he encourages musicians to try and be the best they can be. But I got the feeling from a lot of it, he said, look, if you can't be the best that you can be, uh, you can't be a highly trained professional musician, then just don't go imposing your amateurish uh, abilities on uh, the rest of the human race because um, that's really making things hard for the uh, for the highly trained musicians to try and uh, get work. Um, and I, I just found something a little bit arrogant in, um, in that attitude. Um, my wife read the, the book. She said she didn't get that impression at all. And it was just um, my own paranoia. But if anyone out there, once again, has read The Cure for Gravity, Joe's uh, biography, write and let me know whether you've got the same impression. Um, he... He appeared on one of his Australian tours. He appeared on a show uh, that was really quite a very um, highly respected rock music program on uh, our national broadcaster, the ABC, back in the 80s. Uh, the show was called Rock Arena. It was hosted by a lady called Suzanne Dowling, who uh, I really quite liked uh, and admired for uh, her musical taste. And uh, she was always promoting uh, a lot of artists that didn't get necessarily a lot of mainstream airplay on other TV shows or on the radio, and anything that she was really passionate about, she'd talk in you know, with uh, high esteem. And Joe Jackson was someone who she'd long really admired. When she finally got him on the show, he was, uh, if I'm going to be kind to him, I'd say he was just you know, a, a little bit grumpy, but he, he, he sort of had this attitude, I don't suffer fools gladly, and he treated her like shit, basically. So... Um, and you know, having seen her do previous shows where she'd gone and spoken to him about in the, the most reverential of tones, I just felt bad for her um, in that regard. But um, so, yeah, that, that didn't endear him to me. And finally, um, one of Joe's big passions is, uh, is uh, the uh, smoking lobby. Um, he, he went and wrote this uh, essay, which uh, if you do a bit of a search in Google, just type Joe Jackson's smoking essay, 
uh, you'll find it. He's got a written essay. Yeah, it's called The Smoking Issue. And he goes into great depth about... Um, he goes into a rant against the anti, what he calls the anti-smoking lobby. Um, and he says, uh, basically, uh, that uh, science has never definitively proved that smoking is bad for you. Uh, and uh, basically, the anti-smoking lobby is just a political body trying to uh, rob uh, smokers of one of their great passions in life. And he tries to uh, argue, I shit you not, people, um, that there are uh, things that we that we encounter every day that are far, far worse than smoking. And yes, there are other forms of carcinogens. I, I accept that, you know, the everyday pollution from our cars and, uh, and you know, smoke from barbecues and all sorts of things. But uh, really, when he's saying by comparison, smoking, the, the ill effects of smoking are negligible. It just, well, it's just... Oh, no, I find it just a little bit of a laugh. Um, uh, he, and he accuses uh, the anti-smoking uh, fraternity of being something of a, of a cultish uh, fraternity. I don't know. I think he's trying to put them in the uh, same category as uh, you know, the Church of Jim Jones. Um, and he says, really, you know, it's, it's um, uh, you know, smokers, you know, the usual thing. Smokers have their right and they want free choice. And how would you feel it if uh, your passion to have have a nice red wine was taken away from you. Well, that's what he feels as a smoker. He's being uh, deprived of uh, his pleasure. No, Joe, if I'm having a red wine, no one else suffers for it. Of course, he heaps scorn upon uh, the, uh, the inverted commas myth uh, uh, about secondhand smoke. Um, feel free to write into me and abuse me and say that Joe's completely right if you want, but sorry, I've hated smoking all my life. And um, just when I read essays like this, it just gets on my wick. So uh, I don't think Joe's someone who I'd particularly want to invite over for a cup of uh, afternoon tea or a beer. Uh, and I don't think he'd probably be willing to come. But I seriously love the man's music. And that's what I'm going to spend the rest of the program talking about. Um, before I go into talking about night and day in uh, any sort of depth, uh, I think I'll take a bit of a break. Uh, we'll be back fairly shortly to uh, talk about Night and Day One. You're listening to Love That Album. He's just a common man. The American dream does the road be this. I'm coming to you live in a living color. Speak to the American People, a podcast called Silver and Gold Daddy. And you know that the American Green, Dusty Rhodes, knows how to bring home the gold, Daddy. And just like Henry Silver sticking Baba Boucher's head inside a sow hanging from the ceiling, Silver and Gold will stick it to you. Stick it to your ears, stick it to your mouth, your eyes, your nose, daddy. And all points in between, they'll take your listening pleasure and stick it between a sow's caucus hanging from the ceiling, daddy. Silver and gold, we talk about movies and shit. Find us on iTunes or silverandgold.com. And I'm back from break. 
Uh, thanks very much once again for listening to uh, Love That Album, uh, the podcast where I rant on, usually with a guest, but uh, not on this occasion, uh, about an album that I love. And uh, the focus of this show is Joe Jackson's 1982 album, Night and Day. Um, yeah, earlier on, speaking about uh, Joe Jackson's uh, uh, history, some great albums that he's recorded. Uh, before and after Night and Day, plus uh, my little personal feelings, I guess, about the man as an artist. Uh, so Night and Day itself, uh, musically, the album was, um, I guess, several galaxies, gal- galaxies, galaxies away from uh, his debut album for A&M Records, Look Sharp. Uh, the first three albums or so uh, featured, um, I guess, a fairly sort of standard uh, rocky guitar-based band with a little bit of piano in there. Um, uh, the band featured uh, JJ himself on uh, on uh, pianos, occasional pianos, and uh, I can't remember if there was any saxophones on those early albums. No, probably not. Um, uh, but yeah, JJ on piano and vocals. Uh, Graham maybe his uh, long-time bass players. Only maybe I think been a couple of albums where he hasn't played. Uh, bass, but he's pretty much been with him throughout his entire career. Um, Gary Sanford on guitar and Dave Houghton on drums. Uh, I think all from uh, his local town, um, which, um, oh gosh, I've gone and forgotten. Where was he born? Where did he live? Oh, well, never mind. I should have paid more attention, I guess, to uh, to his biography. Anyway, never mind. Ah, oh, Portsmouth. Portsmouth, his hometown. So I think, uh, yeah, they're all local musicians from Portsmouth who uh, ended up seeing the world with him. Uh, but uh, that band split up after their third album, Beat Crazy. The first two albums were sort of pop-punky. Uh, the third album still retained some of that feel with um, uh, a little bit more of a, a, a dap of the cap to uh, ska music, uh, late 70s ska revival. And then uh, he went into, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, Jump and Drive album. Um, but uh, none of that prepared us for what was to be the lush piano-based sound of um, uh, Night and Day. Joe making good use of his uh, long-time piano training, although his um, uh, his music qualification, I think, ended up being uh, his major was in percussion. So uh, how he ended up being famous as a uh, pianist, uh, I don't really quite know. But um, yeah, anyway, so uh, night and day. Uh, yeah, as I mentioned, early, uh, very uh, light years away from uh, his early guitar-based efforts. Uh, and I guess I'd make a bit of a comparison to the filmmaker Woody Allen. Uh, Woody Allen's early films were uh, of a um, uh, very strong... Uh, that's a word I'm looking for. Not comedic. I mean, it's all comedic. Uh, but uh, I, I guess some somewhat surrealistic, uh, madcap, bizarre sort of nature. His early films like Bananas and uh, Take the Money and Run. Uh, then there was the interim film The Front, uh, which I guess I liken in JJ's case to Jump and Jive. And then Annie Hall, where he uh, entered his still humorous but Ingmar Bergman-esque phase so um yeah joe jackson himself going into a, a different phase at uh, night and day somewhat um 
No, I don't like the word suave or sophisticated because that seems to indicate that there was uh, uh, nothing about those first few albums. But the musicianship was certainly high, but as I said, more guitar based. So there was a stylistic uh, great change from those early albums to um, uh, what became Night and Day. I guess the other Woody Allen comparison is uh, Night and Day is uh, Joe Jackson's tribute to his, what was then his new home city, his new adopted city of New York and uh, uh, Woody Allen after Annie Paul made his tribute to uh, his beloved home city of Manhattan, although I guess uh, whereas Woody Allen's Manhattan is uh, a somewhat romanticized view of the city um, night and day uh, whilst showing some musical love for the town lyrically uh, there's a there's a lot of drama in maybe some of the early um, angry young man phase in uh, uh, in some of the songs but we'll get to that um, so yeah I guess the album's more of uh, Joe Jackson's perceptions of the city in uh, little little uh, sketches it's not an album that you know I, I guess so much uh, is New York in content but um, uh, but it's certainly inspired uh, by the city and there's a there's a great uh, uh, illustrated front cover of uh, Joe sitting at the piano a very famous cover uh, with the New York skyline behind him uh, so yeah the album uh, when it was out on vinyl folks remember that uh, was divided into uh, two halves. Side one of the album is the more dancey, energetic style uh, with uh, lots of uh, Latin rhythms, lots of salsa type rhythms. Uh, and side two is, I guess, a more quiet, reflective side, although uh, one of the songs, uh, Cancer, that we'll speak about very soon, um, I guess in a way could have fitted in somewhere on side one. But uh, let's start at the beginning. Uh, so the album was recorded, uh, well, released anyway, in uh, 1982. And the album opens up with, um, with a fantastic track called Another World. Actually, I should probably, at this point, uh, make reference to the band used on the album. Uh, so there's uh, Joe himself playing uh, piano and sax. Uh, Graham Maybe, as I mentioned, is a long-time bass player. And... Um, his uh, new drummer replacing uh, Desperate Dave Houghton of the early albums was a guy called Larry Tolfrey who had actually gone and played on the Jump and Jive album, the previous album. Uh, but uh, whereas uh, I guess there was a lot more technical playing on that, uh, Larry's going for, I guess, more of a feel uh, on, on uh, this album, more feel playing rather than hardcore technical jazz playing. Um, but the real star of the album, uh, I think, is um, a woman who I've not actually, uh, I, I don't know what else she's done besides Joe Jackson's music, although um, I imagine that someone like her would be uh, quite high in demand, and I'm talking about uh, Sue Hadjopoulos, um, uh, an incredible uh, dynamo on percussion. I've seen her on, um, I think, two of the Joe Jackson tours of Australia, uh, one where he was promoting... Uh, the album uh, Laughter and Lust, and one where he was uh, performing or uh, promoting an album called Night Music. Actually, I've just gone and paused uh, my podcast and went to do a little bit of a search on Sue's uh, background. So uh, she started out as uh, uh, a congera and timbale player, 
in uh, a, a 14 piece all female salsa band called Latin Fever. And she was singled out for praise by uh, the great Tito Puente. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, everyone knows him as uh, the king of Latin music and uh, all round fantastic timbale player. Uh, so, uh, with, uh, with praise from uh, the master of uh, Latin percussion, uh, you know that she's someone very special indeed. And certainly on that night music tour, uh, I remember the uh, Melbourne audience, um, I think, uh, more excited about her than even JJ himself uh, in the band. Uh, so, and on the Night and Day album, Sue Hadjopoulos and Larry Tolfrey's uh, rhythmic interplay is uh, very tight, and yet it doesn't sound uh, cold like in a studio musician's sense. They have uh, some really great interplay there. Uh, and probably another really good example I, I, I ask you to search out is uh, on the Joe Jackson Live 1980 to 1986 uh, double album uh, came out in the mid 80s. Uh, and they, uh, they cover in the night and day style uh, the song Look Sharp from Joe's early, uh, from his first album. And there's a bit of a drum percussion solo thing going on there uh, between the two of them. Very, very exciting stuff. That uh, they work really well as a, as a drum percussion duo. Anyway, so let's get to the album properly. As I said, album opener, Another World, and um, uh, Sue, Sue's uh, percussion playing, is, you just know, is uh, going to be the highlight uh, of this album. It's just so strong. Um, uh, it's an exciting song. Uh, Joe's writing about entering a new world. He's left England uh, for good. Um, prior to uh, recording the album, he'd just been divorced. Uh, he's left Portsmouth for New York City. And uh, the lyric, I guess, reflects um, that he's dispensing of uh, uh, a previous negative state of mind with some hope for the future. Uh, he sings, I was so low. People almost maybe give up trying always said no but then i turned around saw someone smiling i stepped into another world uh and quite unusual lyric i guess for jj you know someone who was known as uh, a bit of a sneerer from uh, early lyrics and uh, he hasn't quite given up with his cynicism uh from other tracks on the album but certainly this is a fantastic uh opening lyric i think so anyway and uh yeah the band really shines uh, everyone really knows their place uh, in, in the skin of uh, Joe's composition, but um, I, I must single out Suhadropolis and probably will be doing a lot of that throughout uh, the rest of my description of the album. Uh, and uh, like all the other tracks on side one, uh, Another World segues into the next track, uh, which in this case is uh, Chinatown. Uh, and um, so after the initial introduction of, uh, of a positive nature to the album, uh, Chinatown sounds like, um, I guess, the musical equivalent of film noir. It has a bit of a sinister feel to it. Um, I guess on the surface, the lyric is about someone losing their way on uh, the main streets of New York uh, with uh, murder and poverty um, never too far from the, the protagonist's eye. Uh, and, and does this mean that... Uh, Joe's already repulsed by his new home city 
Uh, the music would seem to suggest otherwise, and maybe it is just nothing more than a bit of a tribute to uh, film noir, or maybe he's just accepting that it's all part of the fabric of uh, his new hometown. Uh, it's murder with a salsa beat. Anyway, yeah, an irresistible combination. Uh, the next track on the album, TV Age. And this is sort of a song that really is possibly more relevant uh, than, than ever. Um, uh, written today, I guess he'd uh, be calling the tune Online Age. Uh, and um, as he once showed with uh, uh, a song from his first album, uh, a song called Sunday Papers, uh, he changed the lyric uh, because in his words, um, the news got so bad, he changed the words uh, to reflect that and recalled the song Monday Papers. So um, I guess yeah, it wouldn't be beyond changing the song TV age to uh, online age. Um, if you hear this, Joe, feel free. You can have that um, as my gift to you. No copyright problems there. Um, yeah, look, the song, I guess, is bemoaning uh, our complete dependence on uh, the TV for entertainment uh, and using it to give us advice for life and never moving from the house. Does this sound familiar? Yep, replace TV with uh, the internet, although we still do have that uh, TV independence. Um, There's a great line in uh, the song. This is 1982, remember. We don't need movies. We've got HBO in the TV age. Um, there's plenty of timbale uh, embellishments, but it's more of a rocky than um, Latin tune uh, compared to uh, the rest of the tracks on, uh, uh, on the side one. But, uh, yeah, lyrically, there's nothing subtle about it. Um, as I mentioned, um, JJ um, spits his venom at uh, our complete dependence. And I guess I can uh, have some sort of sympathy for that. Uh, and just because uh, the means of delivering the message is uh, less rough uh, than, um, uh, than, than his earlier music, than the earlier punky message of his early music um he still sounds very much like uh the angry uh, angry young man or angry late 20s or early 30s man or however old he was at the time uh, uh that song segues into a tune called target it's an incredible latin piece of work and um once again the interplay by larry tolfrey and suha droplas really comes to the fore uh on this tune a uh, very, very danceable song about uh, paranoia and fear of being gunned down on the streets of New York. Um, yeah, I don't think I know of many other uh, songs about a fear of dying that are set to a very Latin and danceable beat. But there you go. Uh, JJ's got that uh, down to a T. Uh, and now New York City always had a reputation, I suppose, at least you know, as this perceived from uh, my side of the world. That it always had a reputation as a, uh, a crime-ridden town. So um, it'd be interesting to know whether uh, the paranoia in the song actually represents uh, Joe's personal feelings about New York or whether it's just you know, a fictitious character, uh, just a protagonist that he's written for in the song. Um, but uh, yeah, certainly another fine piece of... Uh, of uh, music and uh, in particular late in the song there's a percussion duet uh, from uh, Tolfrey and Hedropolis 
punctuated with uh, a two-note refrain every uh, every other bar from uh, from uh, Joe on the piano and um, uh, play uh, with, with uh, Graham maybe bass underpinning it. But uh, yeah, Tolfer and Hadropolis really are the stars there. Uh, and the, the uh, first side of the uh, of the vinyl ends with uh, I think what was uh, one of the two big singles from the album. Uh, stepping out it's a glorious song um, and uh, it's quite an interesting musical mixture because uh, uh, you have it, it's a real drum beat but it sounds uh, almost like a computer's driving it um, it's, it's sort of like a, a bit of a robotic drum beat and bass line that's um, uh, in contrast with a beautiful piano and xylophone uh, melody played on top of it and really the melody just absolutely soars in a very human way and counterpoint to um, you know, this, uh, I don't know, it wouldn't call it really a techno drum beat, but, um, uh, but so, yeah, as I said, a very robotic drum beat. Played, as I should emphasize, with a real um, real snare and, uh, and hi-hat and bass drum, but um, yeah, something very robotic. Uh, but uh, the music's absolutely wonderful uh, and a great lyric. Uh, it sort of seems to return to the positive nature of uh, the beginning of side one. Uh, uh, the, the lyric, we so tired of all the darkness in our lives, uh, with no more angry words to say, can come alive and get into a car and drive to the other side. Um, he's, this is a, a rejection of all that's holding uh, the character back. In, uh, I guess... Um, it, it's and there's another great part of the lyric that's a rebuttal to uh, his earliest on TV age. We are young, but we're getting old before our time. We'll leave the TV and the radio behind. Don't you wonder what we'll find stepping out tonight? Um, and yeah, the the unlike the uh, previous songs, the uh, the melody is in perfect sync uh, with the lyric here. It, it acknowledges that not everything's absolutely perfect. But um, the protagonist, and you know, presumably JJ himself, is uh, going to reject all that's negative and just enjoy stepping out uh, and being part of uh, uh, his new adopted hometown of New York. Um, uh, I guess he, he recognises how uh, what was in late 20th century living has trapped us with all its complexities, but um, uh, I guess the message of the song is to let's regain our sense of wonder and try something different. Let's step out. Um, in concert, uh, at least the couple of times that I went and saw him, um, he performed this as a slower-paced piano ballad rather than as uh, the up-tempo album arrangement. It worked quite well in that way, but um, uh, for my money, the uh, studio version, the, uh, the the version that we all love and are familiar with, works a better for me. But uh, yeah, the slower ba ballad version that he did live and uh, I think might appear on uh, a couple of the live uh, albums and, and uh, videotapes or DVDs that he put out. Uh, it still works very, very nicely. Uh, so that's the end of side one of the album. Uh, might take another quick little break before we head into uh, side two. And uh, yep, yeah, I'll talk about side two in a minute. You're listening to Love That Album, talking about Joe Jackson's 1982 album, Night and Day. When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings, 
reinventions and Reese Witherspoon. Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Enter the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s drive-in porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn-off? Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast, a podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think that Sid Charisse is a guy and that Myrna Loy is a kind of metal, you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com and do yourself a favour. And I'm back from break. Uh, up to uh, the final part of uh, this edition of Love That Album, Joe Jackson's Night and Day album from 1982. Uh, previously, before the break, covered the first side of the vinyl album or the first five tracks of the CD, whichever way you want to look at it. And just to uh, round off the rest of the show, I'm going to talk about side two of the album, uh, the more quiet more reflective, I guess, way is uh, that the album has been described on side two, more ballady, certainly uh, very little of the Latin influence that's shown on side one with one track that's uh, an exception. We'll get to that shortly. The first track on side two, the opener, um, is a sad, beautiful song called Breaking Us In Two. I think this is a single actually as well. Um, uh, the lyric is told from uh, the perspective of uh, one half of a couple who's, um, I guess, wanting to break it off or at least uh, go go on holiday for a while from uh, coupledom. Does that make any sense? Uh, th- there's no acrimony, but uh, he really wants to um, try something different. I guess it's maybe the dark side of the coin from uh, the, the last song on side one, Stepping Out, whereas, you know, let's try something different. That song had a bit of a positive spin, Breaking Us In Two, has the songs, that, or the, the theme's negative spin. He still wants to try something out, something different, step out, but it's away from his partner. This, I don't know, might have been written to uh, the woman who he divorced prior to um, recording Night and Day, I don't know. Um, uh, the song has a very simple rhythmic arrangement uh, no, none of the percussive acrobatics that uh, we heard on uh, the first style on the first side of the album and uh, Jackson's piano style beautifully fills all the gaps uh, without being showy uh, some really beautiful rhythm and melody work that uh, all works quite well together here uh, as I said, yeah, very, uh, very pensive, very sad lyric, but uh, tunes in a major key, so it's a bit hard to get terribly sad. Uh, good songwriting trick there. Uh, that uh, goes into uh, track two on side two of the album, a uh, song called Cancer. And um, this is a song that I guess I, I, I view a little differently nowadays to uh, how I felt at the time. Um, 
Uh, I, I guess first let's talk about it musically. It's certainly, I, I think, uh, musically uh, the centre of the album. Um, it's it's the one track on side two that reverts to some of the Latin influence uh, that we hear on uh, side one. In the verses of the song, the piano melody sort of preempts uh, the vocal melody, and then the chorus, the piano reflects the vocal melody. It's quite a uh, quite a clever trick, I think. Well, trick isn't the right word, but uh, it's quite clever what he's doing there. Uh, there's a beautiful, or brilliant piano solo that uh, takes place about three, four minutes into this uh, seven-minute epic here. Uh, great Latin solo uh, that, uh, I guess, in the best jazz tradition, starts fairly simply and then uh, burns. It just builds to a very frenetic pace uh, before reverting to the final chorus of the song. But uh, while we're listening and enjoying this fantastic melody, there's um, uh, a really interesting lyric that's going on here. I don't know, it depends where you sit in life, uh, what you've seen happen over your life, that will uh, determine whether or not uh, you agree with what uh, Joe's actually saying here. Lyrically, the song uh, reflects his exasperation that no matter what people will do in this life, everything is going to give us cancer. Or more simply, I guess, uh, he, he's uh, showing his frustration that uh, people are discouraged from really trying anything new for fear of potentially bad consequences. Um, some of the lyrics, let's have a look here. Uh, don't work hard, don't play hard, don't plan for the graveyard. Uh, I guess he, he, he goes a little bit far just to emphasize a point. Don't touch that dial, don't try to smile, just take this pill. It's in your file. Uh, don't work by night, don't sleep by day. You'll feel alright, but you'll pay. Everything, everything gives you cancer. Um, so I, I guess from, from uh, you know, that perspective, uh, I guess I can see what it is that he's saying, and uh, certainly, you know, especially nowadays, uh, we're, we're all very well protected, you know, there's uh, uh, work environments, have strong health and safety commitments, and sometimes we're told in the most ridiculous ways, don't do this, don't do that, you need to do, you need to get accreditation before you're allowed to open up a new pack of paper, and uh, we do try to micromanage everything, uh, and this is certainly, uh, you know, this song was written 30 years uh, ago, um, so there's, look, there's certainly something in what he says here, uh, but I don't know, maybe because I'm older and more cautious now that um, maybe I question some of what he says. And certainly I look around me and uh, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of statistics and a lot of people who, who I know and I'm sure who you as listeners know may have actually contracted cancer. It, it seems to certainly be... Uh, more prevalent than I remember as a uh, as a kid or a teenager growing up, although maybe I wasn't paying as much attention at the time. I guess you know Joe would argue that he, you know the point of the song is not about the uh, increased or you know, perceived increased rate of cancer, but uh, more just that we're told never to attempt anything new for for fear of uh, of getting ill. Um, and I really, as I mentioned earlier on in the podcast. Uh, I guess I get more cynical towards his song because of uh, his uh, his huge essay 
expressing his frustration with the anti-smoking lobby. Uh, so I guess cancer might as well have been his his uh, essay set to a Latin beat, and uh, certainly more palatable, I guess, in a way than uh, the, than uh, the essay, which, as I've mentioned before, is called the smoking issue. Uh, search it out. It's, I don't know, maybe about 13 pages, might take you a good 15, 20 minutes to read and digest, see where you stand on it. Uh, he certainly writes very articulately, but there are holes in the argument. Uh, see what you think. Um, oh, I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> the next song on the album was the big hit single. Uh, I'm not sure quite where it got up to on the charts in, uh, in Australia, but must have gotten fairly close to number one if uh, not quite number one, and I know that it got to high positions in the British and uh, American charts. Um, uh, I think it was the first single, and uh, I remember hearing this for the first time and feeling you know, quite disappointed. I'd you know, just gotten into Joe Jackson's Jumping Jive, the, the swing album, and thought that this new album was going to be more of the same and didn't realise that no, he's making a, a left turn. Certainly, it, it's you know, not as far away from Jump and Jive as it is from uh, Look Sharp, but it's still uh, something stylistically quite different. And I was very disappointed with Real Men the first time I heard it, but that was just because I was expecting something different once I actually heard the album and put it, this song into its full context. Um, I became quite addicted to uh, this song. Um, and yeah, it's really, I guess it's a surprising hit uh, considering the forthright lyric that we have here, certainly for mainstream top 40 radio. Uh, the lyric, I guess, is a treatise on uh, modern man's confusion on how to be a, a, a modern man, you know, be you heterosexual or gay, um, how to dress, how to treat women, how to wage war. Uh, and it raises more questions than uh, uh, a, men's week, a, a man's weekend retreat or symposium on uh, the subject. Um, I don't need to go lyrically too much into this because chances are if you're listening to this podcast, you've heard this song many, many times. But uh, certainly it's one I never get sick of. Um, and uh, yeah, beautiful, beautiful melody. Uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, on, on the, a couple of the last times I saw him, uh, performed this song. He was getting someone else from the band, probably Graham, maybe, to sing the high notes. I don't think Joe can hit those high notes anymore, but uh, be that as it may. It's still great for the time, and it's still a very strong and powerful song here in 2011. Um, the album closes off with uh, a real masterpiece, and funnily enough, I don't really think I have that much to say about it. It's... Uh, words can't just really describe this and I don't really think I want to try too much to lyrically go into this but the song is called A Slow Song uh, and musically it just starts out very very quietly and builds up to this powerful crescendo an almost orgasmic crescendo um, yeah look I don't think I want to really say too much more than this is part of it. it's just an absolutely beautiful melody I think it's Joe's personal favourite of his own compositions so uh, if it's good enough for him, then uh, you should check this out. If you haven't heard a slow song, go out and buy Night and Day, even if the rest of the album doesn't mean anything much to you. Uh, listen to this one song, an absolute masterpiece. Uh, the masterpiece of the album, and 
certainly a masterpiece out of Joe's uh, entire back catalogue. All right, well, uh, we've carried on for a while. This has uh, been my one solo effort uh, thus far in uh, doing the show. I can't discount the fact that I'll possibly be doing a few more of these if I want to cover albums that I don't know anyone else who uh, wants to talk about them. But I certainly must confess I do prefer to be doing uh, these show in uh, the company of uh, other music fans. But uh, be that as it may, I've still enjoyed speaking uh, about this album for your uh, oral enjoyment. That's oral, A-U-R-A-L. And, um, yeah, before I sign off, uh, I should just make note of a couple of things. First of all, I want to give a big thanks to uh, a couple of other podcasts out there who've uh, been uh, big supporters of uh, my efforts, my endeavours. Locally here in uh, Melbourne town, uh, there's a fantastic uh, podcast put out by... uh, uh, a cinephile, uh, a, a giant of cinema knowledge, uh, Terry Frost, uh, puts out a fantastic podcast called Paleo Cinema, and uh, I urge you to uh, look that one up on iTunes, uh, or you can find him at his website, www.paleo-cinema.com, and uh, Terry really knows his stuff, and he covers uh, movies, both obscure and quite well known for the day, but certainly, uh, in his own words, movies at least 20 years older or more, but uh, certainly his periods tend to cover 40s, 50s and 60s movies, although he has gone and covered some other periods of time, but um, Terry certainly knows what he's talking about uh, in, in uh, cinematic terms, and uh, the, the shows are always very enjoyable. And the other show, I want to give a uh, a big yell out to is uh, Silver and Gold that's S-I-L-V-A and Gold all one word go to silverandgold.com and uh, that show is hosted by uh, Pickleloaf and Dr. Zom and uh, once again uh, a movie show uh, and um, their, their shows are epic uh, they cover three hours and the first hour and a quarter usually covers Um, what they've been watching in the past week uh, without even necessarily uh, taking the time to talk about the the two movies that are usually the focus of every program. There's always a bit of half an hour feedback at the end. So, yeah, the shows, you don't get much change out of three hours between uh, The Loaf and The Zom. Uh, And uh, I'm supposed to be recording this Saturday night with Dr. Zom. He's going to... be doing an episode of Love That Album with me. We're going to be talking about both the movie and the album Quadrophenia. We both discovered that we had uh, The Who uh, in common as uh, a musical appreciation. And so we decided that it would be a fine thing to talk about uh, Quadrophenia, both from a musical and filmic perspective on uh, Love That Album. So that episode should be out sometime fairly shortly after you hear this one, possibly another couple of weeks down the track. But I'm recording that this Saturday night, and I've already spoken once to uh, Dr. Zom. We tried to record the episode uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I had technical glitches. The software didn't work. Uh, damn shame, but uh, Dr. Zom was uh, an absolute joy to speak to. He knows his stuff. Very, very friendly guy, and we were talking about all sorts of stuff, not just movie and music-related stuff. Um, and um, I urge you to listen to uh, his podcast. Uh, both because it's a lot of fun and also because uh, 
uh, uh, Dr. Zom and Piccolo, so just lovely guys. So, um, yep, there, uh, there go uh, my plugs from a personal perspective, but other shows that uh, I urge you to uh, seek out just because they're uh, really very good. Uh, another, all, all filmic ones, apart from one other one I can think of. Uh, the other filmic ones are The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, another cult movie uh, podcast. Uh, another Australian one called Girls on Film. Well, it's actually sort of an international production. Uh, it's uh, hosted by um, uh, Rachel, uh, comes out of Perth in uh, Western Australia, and uh, the other three members of the crew are, uh, I think, all based in uh, the United States. But it's a wonderful thing, this Skype uh, invention allowing us to uh, do uh, these podcasts all across the world and being able to record them for uh, uh, your listening pleasure. Uh, so what, else, what other shows? Uh, Filmspotting.net, another great film podcast. Uh, the guys come out of Chicago and uh, always present some really interesting stuff uh, on the uh, latest uh, films coming out. Uh, plus, uh, they do their top five uh, films on a given theme every week. Um, yeah, I won't describe it. Just give it a listen. A lot of fun. Film spotting at filmspotting.net. And final show that I wanted to make mention of that I really enjoy is called Sound Opinions, uh, another uh, program out of Chicago. And it's a music one. And every week there's a different theme and they might talk about a different album or they might uh, interview uh, a particular uh, performer or producer. Uh, but always interesting, done by a couple of rock journos out of Chicago and uh, always interesting listening regardless of whether uh, the music on that particular week is your bag or not. All right, I've rambled on enough. I hope you've enjoyed listening to uh, the program. You can download it, uh, all future episodes uh, from iTunes. Just type in Love That Album, or one word, or you can get it off uh, my blog site, lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. Any feedback would be highly appreciated. Uh, just send me an email to rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au uh, or if you want to create an mp3 file uh, where you uh, uh, have a few things to say about the show, I'd love to hear from you and I'll play it on the next episode. Uh, be great to hear from me. Any feedback would be highly appreciated. Uh, but uh, thanks once very much again for listening and I'll see you on the next episode of Love That Album. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 